Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Richard Sakwa. He is professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent. His books include Frontline Ukraine and his latest Deception, Russiagate and the New Cold War. Richard, thank you for joining me once again. As we are speaking, we are nearly two months into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. From your perspective, where do things stand right now? At the moment, it's a type of stalemate. I mean, there's movement on the battlefront. Uh, clearly, the big battle for the Donbass is just about to get into full flood. But uh, no one it seems to be inclined to uh, move towards serious peace negotiations. All the parties to the conflict uh, believe that a continuation of hostilities will improve their bargaining position in the long term. Russia will seize more territory, uh, I mean, possibly go as far as Odessa, but certainly uh, maintain that land bridge from uh, the, the Donbass all the way through to Crimea, uh, more uh, and the full uh, part of both the Lugansk and uh, uh, Donetsk oblasts regions as in the past. Ukraine feels that with uh, Western weaponry, it can push back uh, the Russians and perhaps achieve some sort of battlefield victory. What is most interesting is that the United States, which usually, you know, in the Palestinian conflicts and Middle Eastern conflicts has always been involved very actively. Um, remember the shuttle diplomacy of Henry Kissinger um, for peace. At this stage, it's notable by its absence. Uh, and the implication is that uh, the United States also feels that in one way or another, it is to its advantage for this conflict to continue. The assumption being that uh, sanctions become ever tougher, that Russia will be debilitated and ultimately uh, weakened as a serious long-term um, competitor. It was never a full-scale peer competitor, but nevertheless, uh, the feeling is that uh, a decisive blow um, could be dealt to Russia before the US pivots on to take on China more substantively. Uh, and as for the European Union, it seems to have no strategic vision ultimately in all of this, other than constantly being shamed into upping the ante in terms of sanctions, uh, even though to its enormous detriment of its own populations. And of course, this also applies to the UK in terms of energy. Uh, we all know here, I mean, my energy bill has gone up uh, threefold from £100 a month to £300 a month, which comes to uh, not much shy of £3,000 a year, which uh, is phenomenal. So we're talking about massive economic damage. OECD uh, is talking about, you know, close to a recession, certainly in the UK. So, but this is going to go on. There's no, I mean, in terms of substantive peace, what could be an offer? Uh, no one really has any idea of how this ends other than ultimately they'll continue slogging it out until some sort of stalemate is achieved. And so what do you think that means for all these various parties' goals? The goal of the U.S. has been to, as you say, to weaken Russia. Russia says that's not happening. It points to, for example, its ruble staying stable instead of uh, being left in rubble, as many in the U.S. were predicting. So based on how it's gone so far, who, who do you think is the most likely uh, of, of achieving their core aims here. Yeah, uh, and thank you for um, yeah turning to, to Russia. That is a whole special thing. In, I mean, it, one thing is the, the war comes, as it were, but the absolute uh, key question is what happens to Russia domestically. I don't think there's any immediate uh, um, chance of a coup or regime change. 
What has been happening, of course, is the intensification of Fortress Russia, the trial of those members of Memorial International and Memorial uh, Historical Association continues domestic repression. But uh, on the economic level, yep, some sort of, uh, you know, Central Bank of Russia has been acting relatively adroitly uh, to move uh, forward. So basically what I'm now suggesting is that we are entering, Russia is actually moving into some sort of a capitalist world, not uh, war communism, which happened after the Bolshevik Revolution, but let's call it war capitalism. And so a full-scale mobilizational economy, including mobilization of society and the repression of dissent uh, and, uh, you know, for a mobilization model, which, of course, many have been calling for domestically at home. Uh, it's, it, it means survival, but does it mean development? Yes, some, you know, obviously the market niches uh, vacated by Western companies as they leave, including retail companies, will be filled by um, Russian competitors. Uh, and so there will be some new opportunities. But all of this is, as I say, a, at a relatively low level of a mobilization economy rather than the developmental model. And just to explain the reference to Memorial, that's a Russian group that documents Soviet era crimes, if I have it correctly, and they were shut down by the Russian government. Uh, yes. Around the invasion of Ukraine, there were two. Two. two there were, I mean, Memorial had two wings. One was doing exactly that, uh, investigating the crimes uh, of Stalinism and of the Soviet epoch as a whole. Uh, and the second one was more active on the human rights agenda. And both of them have been closed down. I mean, they were established at the high, high amidst the high hopes, the peak of perestroika. This is Gorbachev's reforms in the late 1980s. And I mean, I'll tell you on a personal note, uh, I'd always felt that as long as, as Memorial continued to work, however tough the conditions may be, that the system or the, you know, some of that democratic impetus, um, which came in the late 80s, early 90s, was still surviving. Clearly now, um, those, uh, those last embers are dying out. And... In terms of the domestic repression in Ukraine, uh, Zelensky recently banned a number of opposition parties, all of them, I believe, you know, veering to the left or, you know, favor favoring so, uh, negotiation with Russia. He did not ban any of the far right parties or militias, including the Azov Battalion. What can you tell us about the level of, of domestic repression that's going on inside Ukraine right now against opponents of the government, especially against people who favor negotiations with Russia? There's a, a recent article up at the Gray Zone by my colleagues talking about just the number of mayors in Ukraine who have cooperated with Russian forces in terms of giving humanitarian supplies or have supported cooperation, how they've been found dead and other people have been rounded up and detained. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, a few weeks ago, 11 uh, opposition parties were banned. Um, and of course, the, the main figure in all of this is Viktor Medvedchuk, who, interestingly enough, on the very day in which uh, um, it, yeah, other events took place, uh, he, he suddenly appeared. Uh, he seems to have been beaten up. Uh, he was in very poor condition. Uh, and of course, Viktor Medvedchuk was the leader of the main opposition party, uh, the opposition bloc, um, which uh, has, you know, has been he, he himself was uh, 
put under house arrest in the end of 2021. Poroshenko himself, a former president, was declared effectively a traitor, a counter-revolutionary uh, in the old money. Uh, but you're absolutely right. That Grey Zone article is a fascinating piece because it, uh, it precisely shows the continuation and intensification of what had been going on since 2014, which is that the whole center of spectrum, if you like, of Ukrainian politics has been pulled over to the right by these battalions. I mean, constantly people argue, look, they only got 2% in the last elections. These are the presidential elections of April 2019 and the parliamentary elections later that year. But that is precisely... Uh, uh, you know, a bad sign in the sense because their ideas of this, this radical nationalism has infected the whole society, even though, as I continue to insist, that until the war, the overwhelming sentiment amongst the Ukrainian people was for peace. That's why 73% voted for Zelensky in April 2019. Unfortunately, like his predecessor, he was unable to withstand and to stand up to these radical battalions. I mean, numerically, uh, the quotient of died in the world Nazis amongst them might be relatively small, but the ethos is the key issue and being absorbed into the National Guard means that uh, absolutely, and you know, I don't know what happened in Bucha after uh, it was retaken by Ukrainian forces. I mean, I think the Russian forces left on the 30th of March. And two days later, uh, we, we had the announcement of these massacres. Now, we do know that uh, some of these uh, battalions came in and they did declare that they were going to start purging and cleaning anybody who'd been working with the Russians while they were occupying the town. Now, I don't have the evidence one way or the other. There is considerable evidence, though, that uh, the standard version that this was a um, killing taking place by the Russian forces uh, can be questioned. I, I'm, I'm not saying that the Russian occupation was completely without violence. Of course, it wasn't. But even the satellite pictures can be questioned as well, the position of the bodies and relation to motor cars and so on. Who knows? I mean, we do need an, invest, an independent investigation because a war crime is a war crime. Killing civilians is you know, unforgivable uh, in whoever and in whatever circumstances. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, you know, th this is one of the other things, of course. Yes, there have been reprisals. And, of course, this was, if you could argue, that the whole population of Mariupol, uh, while uh, battling, though Russia opened the door um, in a um, humanitarian corridor several times, that they were blocked by these uh, the militia, because it's basically been the National Guard and the Azov Battalion down there doing the worst fighting and now cause hold up in Azovstal, uh, which, you know, this huge metallurgical plant and it goes down eight floors uh, and they're refusing to surrender. Uh, and of course, even the maternity hospital bombing is, is questionable because a lot of eyewitnesses say that all the women were evacuated, all the people, personnel, not just women, were evacuated and that it was a, it's on a little hill, and it was an ideal position for the battalion. And they took over, including the food, stole the food from the people there. Um, again, independent investigation is required. I mean, I have no uh, independent source of information, just different versions, which is, of course, one of the characteristics of this war. 
it's interesting to look at the coverage now or even the way the Azov Battalion is described. The New York Times once described it as a neo-Nazi paramilitary organization. Now, neo-Nazi is gone. It's been disappeared in the pages of the Times. And now they're described as a far right organization or a right wing organization. Your comment on that? Yeah, uh, that is part of the larger context where uh, the, my, you, my, your enemy's enemy is my friend, however odious and distasteful they may be. And that, of course, has characterized the whole Ukrainian episode well, disaster since 2014, uh, in that Ukraine was clearly uh, part of a proxy war on both sides, if you like, that this was going to be the battlefield uh, in which those unresolved issues at the end of the Cold War were going to battle it out uh, against, you know, those two versions of a peace order, the um, so Chinese version of Soviet internationalism and the liberal hegemonic version uh, in which you have NATO advancing, in which its uh, human rights agenda, which is excellent, of course, uh, if only they stuck to it, um, was going to become the universal one. And anybody who stands against it is not just mistaken, but fundamentally evil. And so, uh, you know, deep, deep below all of this is, if you like, the culture of this, what I call it, I mean, it was a second Cold War. Now it's actually a full-scale battle or proxy war. And in fact, Ukraine is fits perfectly into the old model of a proxy war of a Vietnam or even earlier Korea, earlier where the main protagonists try to avoid direct conflict, but uh, they uh, you know, pile in the weapons and um, support each side. However, as, as I say, however odious your, your allies might be. And of course, you turn a blind eye to it. This, of course, um, you could say many a Middle Eastern potentate fighting wars in Yemen and elsewhere also gets away with it, uh, which in many ways is more savage and catastrophic at this time than uh, even the Ukrainian conflict, however dreadful it may be. And I have an article just out about that goes through the history of the war in Syria and I draw some parallels to the proxy war in Syria and Ukraine. And one of them is that the U.S. is basically overlooking concerns that it's flooding a war zone um, with weapons and not being able to keep track of where those weapons go. In the case of Syria, weapons ended up that came from the U.S. ended up in the hands of Al Qaeda and ISIS. And now there's a headline on CNN that says what happens to weapons sent to Ukraine? The U.S. doesn't really know. Yeah, uh, there's plenty of pictures which uh, I've seen on, um, you know, when one is doom scrolling through the internet of captured weapons from the West. And so we had stingers, we had javelins, we had uh, the British ones, the Enlaw uh, anti-tank weapon, uh, which of course uh, were captured and they haven't performed particularly well on the battlefield, interestingly enough. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is right, it, it's going to, um, B, you could also uh, make the uh, analogy with Libya, where we had the collapse of the regime and the vast flood of weapons that has now fueled war across the whole Sahel region. Um, it, you know, we'll be lucky if the conflict is contained within Ukraine. Already we've seen uh, attacks on, on oil installations near Belgorod uh, and other, um, another, yeah, within Russia proper, yes. So, uh, and of course, there may well be, uh, and it's already been warned that supply lines may, within NATO territory, may become a legitimate target. 
Uh, I mean, this is why they've attacked uh, Lviv, Lviv uh, as well, because that's a transshipment point. So we'll be lucky. Plus, of course, we're not just talking about a spatial escalation, but of course, uh, an escalation towards the lower um, rungs of, of the nuclear ladder, which uh, if one side or the other is really wasn't if Russia was facing massive defeat, it's uh, nuclear doctrine says, you know, if the country is, is existentially threatened, then, you know, nuclear weapons are uh, so the dangers, both in spatial and in horizontal terms, is is, is enormous. Let me ask you about Zelensky. I'm curious about your thoughts on how he is being portrayed now as this heroic figure, a modern day Churchill. That's the standard line about him. Um, and also your assessment of whether how serious he was to ever fulfilling his election mandate to make peace. Mm-hmm. People forget this, but in 2019, he was elected with an overwhelming mandate, more than 70% of the vote. And his promise was to make peace, to end the war in the Donbass. And he even vowed to pay a political cost for it. But then what happened, he came in and he immediately faces threats from the far right. They tell him that if you make peace with the Russian-backed rebels, we'll overthrow your government. Some even said, we'll end your life. And shortly after his election, I interviewed the late scholar Stephen F. Cohen of NYU and Princeton. And he said that there's, unless the U.S., support Zelensky's peace mandate, there's no way that he can ever end the war in the Donbass because the the far right will just overpower him. You have a situation now, which seems not to be widely understood, that the new president of Ukraine, Zelensky, ran as a peace candidate. This is a bit of a stretch, and maybe it doesn't mean a whole lot to your generation, but he he ran a kind of George McGovern campaign. The difference was McGovern got wiped out, and Zelensky won by, I think, 71, 72 Mm. Percent. He won an enormous uh, mandate to make peace. So uh, that means he has to negotiate with Vladimir Putin. And there are various formats, right? There's the so-called uh, Minsk format, which involves the German and the French. There's bilateral directly with Putin. But his willingness, and this is what's important and not well reported here, uh, his willingness to deal directly with Putin, which his predecessor, Poroshenko, was not or couldn't, or whatever reason, actually required considerable boldness on Zelensky because there are opponents of this in Ukraine and they are armed. Some people say they're fascist, but they're certainly ultra-nationalist. And they have said that they'll remove and kill Zelensky if he continues along this line of negotiating with Putin. So now along comes Trump, right? So Trump makes a wrong-headed phone call to Zelensky about Biden and information. It was a wrong thing to do. No two ways of looking at that. But the more important thing is, and that's why I'd like to see the full transcript, of the, uh, we've only been given a partial so far as I know. I want to know if Trump encouraged Zelensky to continue the negotiation with Putin. And here's why. Zelensky cannot go forward, as I've explained. I mean, he, his life is being threatened, literally, by quasi-fascist movements in Ukraine. He can't go forward with full peace negotiations with Russia, with Putin, unless America has his back. He, maybe that won't be enough. But unless the White House encourages this diplomacy, Zelensky has no chance of negotiating an end of the war. So the stakes are enormously high. And, of course, the U.S. policy choice has been well known. They continue to flood Ukraine with weapons. Uh, they did not, I think, I think we can credibly say they did not want to see an end to the war in the Donbass. But I'm curious your thoughts on Zelensky himself. Given that he was backed by an oligarch who also funds the Azov Battalion, the Azov Battalion being one of the key uh, participants in the war in the Donbass and very opposed to any peace with Russia, can we say that Zelensky was ever serious about making peace, about actually ever fulfilling his election mandate? Or do you think he made genuine steps that he was just 
too powerless to fully see through. I think he was genuine. I think that uh, the aspirations for peace were mutual, both from the population, voters who supported him, and he himself at that point, given his background and uh, um, coming from the Russophone part of the country and so on. And uh, the proof of that is that he uh, had that meeting in Paris of the Normandy format with Putin in December 2019. But even as he did that, of course, the Steinmeier formula to fulfill the Minsk Accords, uh, which he uh, was thinking of doing. And then afterwards, uh, his chief of staff convened a meeting. So there were elements. However, but as you say, he... he uh, he didn't have the U.S. support. He didn't even have European Union support, effectively, which is quite astonishing. Angela Merkel and Macron, much talk. But they really did not, because they were there at that Normandy meeting uh, in France. But uh, astonishingly enough, bottom line, what uh, about Zelensky? I personally, obviously, enjoyed him very much when he was playing the comic actor in uh, Servant of the People, a fantastic show, uh, and really enjoyed it. And therefore, we all had a certain well of sympathy for this man, uh, who we may think that maybe um, life is stranger than art, and that maybe this person would have an understanding. And also, if you watch his interviews back in 2012, 2013, 2014, where he in Russian, fluent, and he spoke moving, he understood Russia, he understood Ukraine. And so with a, you know, a sardonic intelligence. However, the tragedy of Zelensky is that he never really ultimately became an independent statesman, statesperson. He just didn't, he failed. He failed even, uh, even in his attempts to achieve peace, which I give him all credit for in that first year. Uh, but he failed. Uh, and the, uh, the adulation which now goes to Zelensky, in my view, is fundamentally misdirected. Uh, Zelensky is not a serious statesman. He is not. Uh, that he is a failure on the most magnificent scale. If he was, even if he had a scintilla of serious statesmanship about him, leadership qualities, he would have easily averted this war. He had endless warnings, they say, from the US, and we know the public ones, and allegedly the US and possibly the UK had intelligence information that we all know how valuable that intelligence information is going to be. But if they, did, you know, they kept saying warning of Russian invasion, if they had any information, perhaps they fed it to Zelensky, but obviously they didn't, because Zelensky, until the day before the invasion, was saying there will be no invasion. But with 150-odd thousand Russian troops, it would not have taken much. Everybody constantly criticizes me, and back to you, for failing to take Ukrainian agency into account. Yes, at that moment, we would have loved to have seen more agency, more agency in terms of forcing a peace deal. Okay, we had these NATO, uh, Russia, and US-Russia um, peace treaties, European peace treaties um, from December 2021 on the table. Where was Ukraine in all these discussions? Why didn't Zelensky at that moment, and I kept expecting something, to say, look, let's sort this out. Instead of which, all he had to do was five words, which he knew wasn't going to happen anyway, anytime soon. Ukraine will not 
join NATO. That's all he had to say. Let's call, if Putin was bluffing, call his bluff. Uh, but uh, instead of which, we had this, this catastrophic war. So we have somebody who is not a state. And I must say, if you read the speeches today, and his endless speeches, which are given standing uh, applause, standing ovations, and so on, they, in my view, are demagogy and populism of the worst order. I, I actually find them odious. I can't read it. I mean, I've read many of his speeches, uh, including the one uh, at the Munich Security Conference just a few days before the war. It was awful in the sense it was filled with a primitive hatred, prim filled with a violent language of division. As I say, there is not a statesmanlike bone in that man's body. And this is why he's willing to see this war. And as long as he is in charge, this war will continue. Because even when he began to talk about a peace agenda, immediately it was a trick because he said, OK, we will have Ukraine's neutral status, but it will have to go to a referendum, which, of course, the outcome of it, who knows what it was going to be. So even that is not in good faith. So it's no, I, I do not share the laudatory views. Yes, of course, the country is under attack, and he has been very brave. And and, and but in, in, as you say, simply calling for more weapons, he should now be calling for the United States to broker a peace to save the suffering of his people. And in a sense, in a sense it actually makes me quite angry the way that he is being lauded, and yet it's over the bodies. Of you know, obviously Russia may, has the primary responsibility. It's the invading, attacking party. But on the other hand, let's have a bit of Ukrainian agency in all of this. If this is what people are constantly calling for, go for it. It seems that at multiple levels, at every at every uh, at every point of policy that could have prevented a war, it seems he was not interested in doing that. There was the final round of talks on implementing Minsk, where his government refused to even talk to representatives of the, of the Russian-backed rebels. The Wall Street Journal reported this recently that on February 19th, German Chancellor Schultz proposed to Zelensky that Ukraine, quote, renounce its NATO aspirations and declare neutrality as part of a wider sec European security deal, unquote, that was, would be signed, according to Schultz's proposal, by both Putin and Biden. And Zelensky said no. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it, he bears a huge responsibility for this war. Uh, it's... Uh, I mean, my, my analogy in in this is like, as I think I may have mentioned before, you know, in a Chekhov play, if you have a pistol on the wall in Act One, uh, that uh, by Act Five you can be sure that it will have been fired. Yes, it was Putin in this case who pulled the trigger, but who put the pistol on the wall? Who created the conditions in which that pistol was going to be used? And uh, I think that Zelensky bears a huge responsibility for this. It's almost, it was a frivolous approach to the fate of a nation and, above all, the fate of his own people. Have you seen any evidence to support Russia's claim that there was going to be an, a Ukrainian offensive against the Donbass, against the rebel-held areas of the Donbass, and that's, why, that's part of why they had to intervene to preemptively stop that? Well, it has to say that... Uh, this is one of those issues that the Western media seems to be peculiarly intense in denying the possibility of such an invasion. Zelensky says no, uh, you know, dismisses the idea. 
However, it cannot be so easily dismissed. We know that in the week before the Russian invasion, uh, Donetsk, these are the, the autonomist uh, parts of uh, Ukraine, were under intense shellfire, Donetsk city itself, uh, and not only. And more than that, we know that Ukraine had, uh, well, you know, figures vary, but we're, talk we're talking at one moment, people said over 100,000, I think the figure was closer to 60,000, of its best troops, and these are the ones now fighting the battle of the Donbass uh, with Russia. And they were dug in, uh, in echelon formation, deep, deep trenches, hardened positions, military, uh, and so on. Uh, it was quite clear that it was an option. Because, as you say, Zelensky refused to talk to his own people. The whole point of Minsk is the belief in Kiev that these were their people, and indeed, the whole idea of Minsk is that these people were not going for separatism. They, and so it's a misnomer, they wanted autonomy within Ukraine. That was initially, of course, things evolved. But nevertheless, let's call them, and I think a good article uh, argues this, they should be called autonomists. autonomists. Uh, and uh, the UK, Kiev and Zelensky, and this is again the fact that he lacked the autonomy himself to speak to these people, because obviously he would then have got a lot of flack from the oligarchs, as you say, and um, his back in Kolomoisky in particular, but also uh, from these uh, uh, military semi-nationalist formations. So he he lacked the guts. I mean, he went to Donbass and uh, to uh, one moment, uh, and when the forces said, no, don't talk to these people, you'll be accused of betrayal, and we'll have another Maidan against you. Well, I mean, at that point, he backed down, as we know. Uh, so, uh, yeah, can I just say one other thing? Obviously, the context of this war is the Nagorno-Karabakh War of 2020, when uh, Azerbaijan had its uh, uh, attack. And we do know that drones supplied by Turkey were used against the autonomists in the Donbass. So, uh, they're, they're clearly, the possibility... I mean, I mean, maybe Zelensky is right, that there were no imminent and immediate plans to launch an offensive. But that was always a possibility. What on earth were 60,000 troops heavily dug in with heavy artillery doing then on the border? And they were not there on holiday, ultimately. So do you see any force inside Europe that could break the logjam obviously the u.s seems very entrenched in its policy not interested in diplomacy that's been made very very clear is there any force inside europe right now that you think could be willing to speak to russia and take russia's concerns seriously to the point of having a, a real negotiation no absolutely not all those traditional interlocutors have um, disqualified themselves. Germany, of course, and Scholz in particular, was always the uh, exponent of Ostpolitik and engagement uh, with Moscow. That's gone uh, because, in, amongst other factors, the nature of the coalition government uh, in Berlin today. Uh, France Macron, of course, is up for election next, well, this coming Sunday, of course, the second round. Uh, after that, perhaps Macron will be able to exercise more initiative. Uh, but ultimately, even he, uh, I think, is constrained by the European Union. And if you remember, of course, uh, Angela Merkel and uh, Macron tried to convene a meeting in June 2021, where the European Union could have exercised 
and acted as the honest broker. But they were vetoed by the Poles and the, and the Latvians uh, and the Baltic republics. Um, so we have a constituency in the EU. And of course, the European Commission and Ursula von der Leyen and Joseph, uh, Joseph uh, Borrell, uh, the foreign affairs commissar, actually said, I mean, the latter said, this will be decided on a battlefield. In other words, a battle to the end. Europe has destroyed itself in this war. It'll survive. It's endless talk of its unity uh, and so on. It's, uh, it, it, you know, it's a, a victory, if you like, amongst the flames and amongst the ruins of a European peace project. So no, uh, and of course the UK uh, is uh, just piling on the weapons and its, uh, its policy is basically to look important uh, irrespective of the consequences. No, the only possibility of, is some external force. Uh, more locally, we're talking about Turkey and Erdogan, who still got good relations with Putin and, uh, and a NATO member, so it's got a certain credibility. We also, uh, obviously, it's China. Uh, so the only way that Europe can get out of this mess, or the Euro-Atlantic zone can get out of its mess, is ultimately through uh, China. And possibly, and what's most been interesting lately, is the way that China and India have, have, have swapped um, foreign ministers, have visited each other, and an extraordinary rapprochement taking place in Asia, despite the battles uh, recently, in recent years, on the line, the demarcation line, high in the Himalayas. So, uh, it, in other words, Europe has to be saved from itself by forces outside of Europe. And this is, you know, one has to say, this is the catastrophe, not just of the post-Cold War years, but of the whole post-war since 1945, the failure of that peace order of a most spectacular nature, the lack of European agency. Now, you may know that I've been arguing for years and years for a pan-continental vision. This is, you could call it a Gorbachevian, you know, common European home vision, but it's deeper than that. It's a Gaullist idea of uh, a Europe which brings, which of course goes, doesn't go down well in the United States, of some sort of pan-European uh, ideal. And of course, it's not just uh, de Gaulle, it was also Francois Mitterrand. And I've always said this, that this is the way to go. It doesn't exclude the European Union, but what it does allow, and what I've been arguing for for many years, is a, not just the institutional expansion of the European Union, which is dysfunctional in all sorts of ways, given the fact it's absorbed Poland and these revanchist powers in the East. But what we needed was a genuine peace order based on, you know, David Mitriani's functionalism. In other words, you build on one level, say, an, a genuine energy partnership, and then you build trust in a neo-functionalist and then you gradually build alliance, but that never happened. This, this genuine functionalist agenda of a peace order. So in other words, attempt to build peace after 1989, after the Cold War, in a purely institutional sense, with Brussels and Washington taking the lead, failed. And maybe after this war, we really will actually have to have a genuinely new peace order based on functionalist principles, which would establish, which would have to be outside of the EU, because Ursula von der Leyen has shown herself to be, you know, it's been a disaster, a disastrous leadership uh, in terms of this war. All it's been doing is stoking and in fact acting precisely to prove the EU is a subaltern to the US 
in, in, in a conflict situation. And this is reflected, just to say, in the strategic compass adopted by the EU on the 21st of March. And can you comment on the relationship between European public opinion and the policies of European leaders? Because I've been mm. looking and I, I've yet to see a country where there's significant support for basically, you know, sanctioning Russia, undergoing extreme uh, sacrifice in terms of, you know, energy costs, food costs for the sake of a proxy war in Ukraine. But I, but I could be wrong. Yeah, no, uh, it's. I mean, I think that public opinion, of course, is much under the influence of uh, a media, which has, certainly in the UK, has been unremittingly, uh, well, it, it hasn't been informative. It's been emotional. And of course, it's a tragedy. And, you know, obviously, there's a, there's a scope for that as well. You know, human tragedy has been on a, on a scale in Europe which we've not seen since 1945. We saw it in the Balkans in the 90s, of course, uh, to a lesser degree. So that's understandable. What is perhaps most uh, uh, you know, disturbing and something which I've been thinking about a lot is where's the peace movement? Uh, what is interesting is that uh, you know, I've been involved in the anti-war movement and we're regularly, Jeremy Corbyn, in the UK and uh, Diane Abbott and so on, we are regularly condemned. Um, and worse than that, the leader of the Labour Party in the UK, Keir Starmer, has announced something astonishing, is that anti-NATO sentiment and Labour Party membership are incompatible. Now, this has never been the case. Even when the Labour Party uh, in the, the post-war Attlee government signed up to NATO in 1949, there were many, many voices opposed. And since then, of course, the Michael Foot wing, the Tony Benn wing, now, and then the Jeremy Corbyn wing. And the Labour Party has always been a broad church, instead of which it's now becoming a neo-dogmatic sect. And you know, this is going to be reflected in the polling booths in the years to come. All right, Richard Sacco, any final comments for us as we wrap what people should be thinking about as this war enters, approaches its third month, its third yeah. month? I mean, this is just simply an unmitigated catastrophe. But I do think that people should, all, should we must understand how we got to this point, that it's not enough just to blame others. Of course, Putin pulled the trigger and he bears responsibility for that. But... Russia is also suffering this all-out economic warfare against Russia, against the people. It's very disturbing, this notion of collective guilt of the Russian people. Now, this is something which, as you know, international law has much to say about this, and indeed, uh, Catholic social philosophy. And basically, it is all the Geneva Conventions say, you do not hold a population ransom in a war situation. And this is what is happening now. Simple things. I mean, my friends cannot get back to Moscow. There's no flights. I mean, this is just unbelievable. The level, we so far had 10 types of sanctions. Each one you could then take individually, you know, along with some sort of a control panel, how far they've pushed the button. But the US is pushing for all 10 buttons to be pushed to the absolute US, UK, I should say, are pushing, and European Union, one should say, are pushing for all 10 buttons. We're talking about financial, we're talking about trade, we're talking about flights, we're talking about you know all these things, personal movement, educational exchanges, all of that has been pushed almost to the max. We've never seen anything like this. 
And so, uh, you know, Andrew Yosha's opinion is, you know, it's divided. You may say that clearly there's heavy repression. Now, if you're going to lose your job, and uh, we, when, one can't expect a huge anti-war movement there. But I mean, it, this, this is you know, a moment of clarity because we are the social forces which could withstand. And, and my, my sec, that's my first point. But I, and the second one is this extraordinary outburst of militarism. Now, this is what the anti-war movement is about. You know, we condemn the invasion, of course. We, inv- we condemn the war. We understand, you know, the conditions. But what we need to do is obviously to find a way out. And the only way to find a way out, if you like, is to examine the way in, because that would explain the context. Uh, And that's just not being done. And there's social movements, and you could say, where's the left in all of this? And uh, it's almost, uh, well, it's negligible. But it's still residual. I mean, there are various meetings we had in our, my little town of Canterbury. 200 people marched from uh, Westgate Gardens to Dane John. But interestingly enough, we didn't, there was not a mention in the local newspaper, the Kentish Gazette. It was just astonishing. But the pro-Ukraine rally was covered and it was nice, good. I mean, I love to see, you know, they let them, that was fine, but it's a selective character, and I suppose that's the third point. The media coverage of this is as bad as it was during Russia Gate, and including the role of intelligence services, the way that information is selectively fed out to tame journalists and then put into the public domain, and then an endless echo chamber. So it, it's bad, and I'm sorry to say, I fear it's going to get much worse before finally, perhaps, people like us. Uh, you know, our voice will be heard. You know, really, we have to find a pathway to peace. Indeed. And speaking of Russiagate, there continues to be developments from the John Durham investigation that further expose what a scam Russiagate was. But those developments, of course, are being overshadowed by the war in Ukraine. And when that war is over, hopefully soon, we hopefully we can talk about those developments soon because Russiagate very much helps explain why we're in this mess in Ukraine today. So. Richard Sakwa, I really appreciate your time and insight. Richard Sakwa, professor, professor of Russian and European politics at the University of Kent. His books include Frontline Ukraine and his latest Deception, Russiagate and the New Cold War. Richard, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you. 